Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. Who's in the next group of Ohioans that'll be vaccinated for COVID-19? We'll have Governor Mike DeWine's thoughts on that in just a moment. Then I'll talk with Ben Zanitsky with the Columbus Metropolitan Library on how they're navigating the pandemic. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend has more information about the vaccine and also has the story of a local man's heart transplant. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with Dwayne Casares, CEO of Directions for Youth and Families, about the challenges kids have faced during the pandemic. When the state started vaccinating people in Phase 1B, it started with people age 80 and older and reduced the age by five years at a time each week till it got down to 65, where it remains. Governor Mike DeWine was asked this week when the next bracket, either those age 60 and up or some other specified group of people, will go next. This runs about two and a half minutes. Yeah, we're working on that. Uh, we will hope to announce it, uh, you know, when we get it, get that done. But what we cannot tell people, and we know we can't tell them, is the dates for any of that. Um, we, we have a... Uh, I want to assure people who are 65 years of age and older, um, you know, we're staying at this date. Uh, we're staying at this age, excuse me, uh, for for the next few weeks because we're going to just continue uh, to give you the opportunity to be vaccinated because you are the most vulnerable people uh, in the state of Ohio. And we know there's been frustration. Uh, we know that people you have look for vaccines, uh, but every week, every day, there are more and more of your fellow Ohioans in your age group that are getting vaccinated, and, and your ability to get on and, 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 and sign up, uh, that's going to in, increase. So I'm not asking you not to be impatient. I would be impatient. I think people have a right to be impatient, but be persistent. Hang in there. Um, you know, we're going to stay at this, at this age and not... Um, not change that until we have a pretty good uh, feel that we've got a large number uh, of the 65 years of age and older who want to be vaccinated, actually, in fact, vaccinated. Uh, so we, we, in answer to your question, Jesse, we, we will come out with this. I don't want to set a date because we're still, we're still looking at it, uh, still trying to, you know, f- frankly, look at the, the question of, Who's most vulnerable, and how do we, you know, how do we save the most lives? I mean, ultimately, the question is, how do we save the most lives, and how do we balance all the things that uh, people very legitimately bring up? As we've indicated, to you seven hundred different groups, uh, over seven hundred now, have sent us letters and indicated to us they they want to go next. Uh, in fact, some of them would say, "We want to go now." Uh, you know, it's human nature. I want to go now. Um, and so we're trying to go through that and, and weigh, weighing that. We spent some time this weekend working on it, and uh, we're just not ready to announce that yet. Um, so we understand people want to know, but what we can't tell them uh, is even after we tell them what group is next, we can't tell them when that group is going to be. Governor Mike DeWine this week at one of his coronavirus updates. 
Up next, we'll check in with the Columbus Metropolitan Library on Columbus Perspective. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James and joining me on the phone, Ben Zanitsky, who is a media specialist for the Columbus Metropolitan Library. How are you? I'm doing great, Dave. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, Tell us about the Columbus Metropolitan Library. Gosh, you know, we have been through quite a lot in the the last, you know, gosh, 11 months now. Um, Just earlier this month, uh, in February, we reopened most of our locations after the stay-home advisory was lifted. Uh, So customers can now come in uh, for limited services. What that means is... Uh, that you can browse our shelves again to pick out your items. Uh, you can once again pick up items on hold as well as return items. Uh, you can use a computer, reserve a table. You can print, copy, scan, fax. Uh, and you can get some in-person job help and school help at limited locations. Uh, the one location that is still uh, closed uh, is our New Albany branch. Uh, which is undergoing a renovation. But, you know, we're keeping a close eye on news coming out of the governor's office uh, and as well as uh, uh, Columbus and Franklin County public health officials because we know that things can change on a dime. So that's what we've been we've been trying to focus on these last few months is just making sure that we can provide our services to our customers in a safe way. Of course, the main library on the east edge of downtown, you mentioned the New Albany branch. How many branches do you have? We have main library and 22 branches, so that's 23 in total. Uh, and 22 of those 23 are, like I said, open currently for limited services right now. I would guess that that's probably a slow process for folks uh, getting back into the routine of going into the library, but you probably have some that are there frequently again. Absolutely. And, you know, for those customers who are, you know, still prefer uh to stay outside, we still have our curbside and walk-up services available at all of our 23 locations, um, and, and we get it. You know, it's it's uh, it can be uncomfortable to be inside with other people. So what we're doing is, is we're capping uh, the number of people who can be in each of our locations at any given time uh, to our limit for those coming inside. Um, But, you know, it's so important for us to be able to offer services right now, especially in the middle of this pandemic, which is really laid bare to some of the inequities of access for our customers right now. um, You know, folks are struggling to find work. They're struggling. Students are struggling with their schoolwork. And so it is critical that we are able to provide access to Wi-Fi and Internet and job and career help for adults and school help for students. And so we've been working on ways we can do that virtually. But if we can start providing those services again in person in a safe way, we'll certainly do that as well. 
Yeah, so many different needs uh, with that one hour availability of use of a computer at a library. Now it's tax season. There's another reason for people to have to use it. Absolutely, absolutely, and we're here to help. You mentioned students with their schoolwork, and, and you know we're hearing stories about up to a third of students are failing or having problems academically in some areas, and uh, this is a really critical time, and, and I would think something that's going to be studied long and hard to figure out how this can be dealt with, and the library might be one of those solutions. Yeah, look, as a parent of a high schooler and a husband to a middle school teacher, I've seen it firsthand. It has been a challenge, and, and it's been uh, it's been impacting mental health, you know, for, for kids and educators. It's It's been really tough. And so I, you know, big shout out to the teachers who have made it work and had to adapt. We want to be here to support them as well as all of our students. You know, 23 of our locations normally offer in-person homework help for students, which is one of our most popular services after school. Obviously, we've not been able to do that for the better part of a year now. Um, so what we've done is we've pivoted to an online platform. Uh, we offer online school help where students can get live one-on-one -on -one help uh, from staff members uh, and online tutors seven days a week, uh, as well as weekdays until 11 p.m. because we know some of those kids are going to be up late working on schoolwork. But, uh, you know, you're right. It's It's been a, a real struggle. And if there's any way we can support students and educators, we certainly are working hard to do that. Um, you know, it's not ideal. We'd love to be back in person helping our students uh, like we usually are. But but until it's safe to do so, we'll, we'll keep keep working online to try to connect with them. You know, it seems like locally this whole mess started raising eyebrows when the Arnold pulled way back in some of the things it was doing last year, and that was about a year ago. Right. And uh, on the other side of that, this week, Pelotonia announced that it is planning to hold an actual event with actual people in person in August. So I guess there is some hope. Is, is there anything at this point that the library looks like it might do that would resume some normal activities besides what you're doing right now in the summer or fall? Sure. Well, we actually have resumed some in-person activities. Uh, I mentioned our uh, school help, our homework help. We are piloting in-person homework help at our Carl Road and Reynoldsburg branches right now. Again, we're, we're keeping a close eye on the number of students who can be in, the, in that space at one time. Um, again, just trying to see how this goes. We're also offering in-person job help services for adult job seekers at our Hilltop, South High, and Whitehall branches. Again, keeping a very close eye on how these how these work in terms of uh, social distancing, PPE use. Um, so, you know, we're, we're dipping our toes in a little bit here just to kind of get a sense of, of how it all will work and, and making sure that we're doing this as safely as we can. But, but for the time being, no, we will not be reopening our, you know, meeting rooms for, for customers to gather. We will not be uh, restarting our in-person story times, uh, you know, the, the, the idea is we want to keep, make sure that we're keeping customers and staff uh, six feet apart or more at all times. Talking with Ben Zanitsky, he's with the Columbus Metropolitan Library. What has the impact uh, on all this been on the staff numbers for the library? And for those still there like you, 
how dramatically has it changed how you approach your job and, and what your job is? I'll tell you, uh, you know, none of our staff obviously trained for, for this last March. We, none of us knew what we were getting into, uh, but props to them. Uh, our staff is resilient. Um, they're dynamic. They have adapted admirably to the challenges that we are all facing. Um, you know, our staff members live and breathe uh, serving our customers, uh, and, and they, they love the connections that they form in person uh, with our customers, and so this has been really difficult for everybody, uh, you know, when all we want to do is, is serve our customers and the communities, uh, but right now what we're focused on is safety and providing services in a, in a virtual environment. You know, we're, we're still doing author talks virtually. We're still holding virtual story times. We're putting out book lists. And uh, we've really kind of transformed ourselves into a 24-7 digital library. So we've really boosted our e-book and e-audiobook collection uh, because we know that uh, people still need access, perhaps even more than they normally would, uh, to resources and materials. What about the library community itself? Do you collaborate with other library systems with Zoom meetings and all that to kind of get up to date on what other libraries are doing to handle this situation? Yeah, you know, we're we're always we're a very close knit community with the other library systems here in Central Ohio and even well beyond Central Ohio. Uh, you know, our leadership uh, is always on emails and and Zoom meetings with other. Uh, library systems to kind of get a sense of, you know, what's working, what's not. We were actually uh, kind of at the center of the library world here uh, for quite some time when we were working with Battelle at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, we lent Battelle a number of different kinds of library materials, and they actually tested the coronavirus on those materials, and the idea was they wanted to get a better sense of how long the virus lives on those materials and so you know for for a good bit there the library world was looking to us and to Patel to see hey you know how long do we need to quarantine these library materials before we're able to recirculate them to other customers so yes we're we're, we're working closely with uh, other museums other libraries other institutions to uh, make sure that we're able to operate safely and what's the status on uh, renovations or rebuilding new facilities for some of your uh, branch locations? Yes, uh, great question. We are uh, in the midst of uh, um, phase two, what we're calling it, of our uh, building program. We wrapped up in 2019 our phase one, which renovated or rebuilt 10 of our libraries, including our main library. Uh, and, and for those in the Northland area, perhaps you've driven by our Carl Road branch, which is uh, under construction right in front of the current Carl Road branch. Uh, we're also transforming our Hilltop branch and expanding it uh, pretty exponentially as well. Our current Hilltop branch is temporarily uh, located in a, a nearby strip mall. Um, but we are also planning new branches for Gahanna and Reynoldsburg, and so you can learn more about those by visiting our website, columbuslibrary.org, and there's a little box, if you scroll down, that says we're building new branches. So, um, yeah, keep, keep visiting our website to learn, uh, to learn more and, and to get updates on what's going on. We're excited to, to reinvest in these communities. What is the impact in a suburb when you open a new branch? What happens there? 
goodness. I mean, just to see, you know, the looks on customers' faces when they enter for the first time after we cut the ribbon, um, it's just that wow moment where, you know, you have a, a, a sort of a preconceived idea of what a public library is, and these new community gathering spaces with their iconic design, walls of windows are, are really kind of changing what that that is. So um, if you've not been to any of our new locations, Driving Park, Parsons, Whitehall, Northern Lights, Dublin, Martin Luther King, Main Library, be sure to, to visit uh, as soon as you're able to do so safely. Uh, or even just drive by and get a sense of, wow, I had no idea that this is what public libraries are or could be. So uh, that's really what we are envisioning for uh, for Carl Road, for Hilltop, for Gehanna, and for Reynoldsburg as well. Great, too, if you get that wow factor with kids who, uh, you know, starting that early relationship with a kid and, and the library is a big deal. Oh, and, and uh, the focus on early literacy is is front and center in these new buildings, too, because we are really bringing the children's area uh, right to the forefront. Every one of these new builds even has a special ready-for-kindergarten area, all focused on preschoolers and making sure that they are ready the first day they show up for kindergarten. So um, very specialized, strategic approach to how we interact with young people. Talking with Ben Zanitsky, he's a media specialist for the Columbus Metropolitan Library. Anything else you'd like to add, Ben? Oh, you know, we are just uh, delighted to keep keep uh, our, our virtual programming going, even as we slowly reopen and resume some services. You know, we just wrapped up a huge partnership initiative with eight other Central Ohio libraries, uh, encouraging Central Ohioans to read the same book. Uh, and it was called Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You by Jason Reynolds and Ibram X. Kendi. And so what we found was that there is a real hunger for this kind of community dialogue. And so we are launching a new community conversation series uh, really centered around social justice called Speak Up, Speak Out. Uh, This virtual series will feature Central Ohio community leaders discussing a book or movie from our collection. And uh, this coming Wednesday, February 24th, from 2 to 3 p.m., we will be discussing the 2016 documentary film I Am Not Your Negro, which was based on uh, James Baldwin's unfinished memoir. And so for those interested in learning more, uh, visit our website, columbuslibrary.org. All right. Best of luck to you, Ben, and and to all the folks at the library, and hopefully things will continue to loosen up and unwind as we go through the year. Absolutely. Thanks, Dave. Roxanne Watson is on a mission. Hello. How are you doing today? She wants more people to register as organ, eye, and tissue donors. Are you an organ donor? Yes, I am. My goal is to sign up the most people in the United States. (laughs) What drives her? Roxanne's own life was saved through the gift of a heart transplant made possible by an organ donor. I decided that day that I was going to devote myself to the cause of organ donation and signing people up and honoring my donor by doing that. Now she's back to health and she's a powerful force helping to save lives every day through her work. Imagine what you can make possible by leaving behind the gift of life. Eight people can be helped with the major organs, and up to 50 people can be helped with a little bit of everything. And when you think about it that way, that you could help that many people, it's amazing, it really is. 
Learn more and sign up as an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Go to organdonor.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources, and Services Administration. Okay, so maybe you didn't finish or broke your New Year's resolution to get to the gym or start that project you had kept on the back burner since, well, okay, the dawn of time. I get it. That's okay. But you know, there's one thing you can do to get back that inspiration, that can-do spirit. Perhaps you or someone you know has a vehicle that they don't drive anymore. Why not consider donating it to the National Federation of the Blind? All you have to do is call 866-282-7327. That's 866-282-7327. You can also log online to nfb.org and click donate. And maybe you know someone that's blind. You can reach out to nfb at nfb.org. That's nfb at nfb.org. So what do you have to lose? You have everything to gain by helping someone in need, like your motivation. Oh, and a tax deduction. So why not get started today? And remember, charity is only a phone call away. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. Here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Here's Tracy. The curfew is over. I'm Tracy Townsend, and this is Face the State. Thank you so much for joining us today. We talked with restaurant owners and the director of the Ohio Restaurant Association. Pushing to 230 is going to be great for everybody just not even financially, but just from a, a mental point of view of getting back to a little bit of normalcy. It's exciting for the entire industry to have the opportunity to uh, maintain the guidelines and regulations, but make some money and see some sales and, and provide the hospitality and service that we've been yearning to do. It won't ha- happen overnight, but you know, consumer patterns tend to, to change kind of slowly. Um, but it will change over time, particularly as we get better weather. This is a complete lifeline. Governor DeWine did say the curfew could be re-implemented again if case numbers and hospitalizations spike. Throughout this pandemic, Governor DeWine has had a lot on his plate. He made some time for 10TV's Bennett Haberly. Here's a little bit of their conversation about the vaccine rollout and whether Ohio is falling behind the rest of the U.S. My commitment is that we're going to continue Uh, to get this vaccine out just as quickly as it gets into Ohio. It comes out, uh, it's shipped into Ohio on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. And our goal is for it to be uh, in people's arms, uh, you know, within seven days after that. And that's working pretty well. Well, we continue to trail behind other states and other U.S. territories. I think the last time I checked the CDC data, we were behind 40 other states when it comes to putting shots in arms. Why are we... Why are we failing? Yeah, first, not, first of all, those, that data is really not right. Uh, let me start with uh, basically congregate care settings, assisted living, nursing homes. Um, you know, we're fifth in the nation uh, in getting shots in arms of people who are the most vulnerable people. Uh, so I'm very proud of that. And our team has done a, a very good job. And the people we work with have done a very, very good job. We're also going to other groups that other states are really not focusing on. Um, people who are really high risk if they get this. For example, uh, people down syndrome. Uh, they're 10 times more likely to die if they get 
this. And so we have targeted uh, them. We've targeted other people who have medical problems, even if they're you know under the age of, of 65. Help me clarify this uh, about the 65-year-old population and up. Uh, there's a plan right now going forward to pause uh, vaccinations once we reach that. Is, that. is that accurate? And how long do you foresee that continuing? Well, by pause, I mean we need to get those who are the most vulnerable vaccinated. 87% of people 65 years of age and older, 87% um, of the people who have died uh, have been 65 years of age and older. So we want to get that 2 million population, as many of them vaccinated as want to be vaccinated. And at the rate that the vaccine is coming into Ohio, yes, that's, that's going to take a few more weeks. So we're not going to lower that age group level until uh, you know, a good number of those 65 years of age and older have had the opportunity to get the vaccine. And that's how we protect people and that's how we save the most lives. But it doesn't make any sense when you have a limited amount of vaccine and your goal is to save as many lives as you can. It doesn't make sense to vaccinate someone who's 35 years of age um, whose odds are very, very good even if they get the vaccine. These decisions are not made in a vacuum. Uh, it's not, should we vaccinate this group or that group? Yeah, we should vaccinate everybody and we intend to vaccinate everybody. The question is when you have a limited amount of vaccine, um, you know, who do you, who do you start with and, and who do you focus on? And what we've done is followed the data, followed the statistics, and we know who the most vulnerable people are statistically in, in our society, and we've got to get them vaccinated. I talked with critical care expert Dr. Matthew Exline from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center about the COVID-19 vaccine, specifically about the unapproved Johnson & Johnson vaccine and how it compares to the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. The two vaccines that are available now are both based on what we call mRNA technology. Uh, this technology has been uh, investigated for over a decade now, and so we have... Uh, a lot of confidence in the safety of the technology. Uh, these vaccines have been used now in uh, over 30 million people in the United States. And so we have pretty good confidence that it's safe for uh, patients to take. Um, many people after the second dose of the vaccine will have some achiness, sometimes a fever, sometimes just a headache that lasts about 12 hours or so the next day. Um, everyone I work with has gotten it. Some people felt bad the next day. Everyone's back at work two days after they get the vaccine and, and raring to go. So we don't have as much data on the Johnson & Johnson in terms of the kind of the mild side effects that we're seeing. I suspect it'll be a little less because it is the only the one shot. And at least with the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, it's not the first shot, it's the second shot that causes more of the side effects. The state is adjusting to account for more than 4,000 underreported deaths. State health officials say the problem comes down to human error on the part of one specific human who works for the Ohio Department of Health. That person's job was to double check the death counts, looking for any overlap in the two sources for the state's death data. The director of ODH says during the October surge, that person got overwhelmed and fell behind, but didn't say anything. It is not acceptable, and we are addressing it so that the public can have confidence in this. When we identify a problem with that reporting, we are going to act on it quickly, 
and thoroughly. Health officials say they are working to avoid future mistakes. They have restructured the department and brought in additional resources. There also is an internal review underway that could lead to more personnel changes. Well, it's now a major push by the Biden administration, but our health experts here at home are also making it a focus. We're talking about getting that COVID-19 vaccine to underserved communities. 10TV's Brittany Bailey looks at the need to make that happen. Equity is our North Star here. That is the message from our national leaders, one that is echoed right here in Columbus. Because we believe very strongly that the underserved communities, minority communities, black and brown, as well as the rural communities, have to have access to testing, have to have access to uh, all the information that we can share about social distancing and, and masks. But ultimately, we have to get them vaccinated. That means all hands on deck when it comes to our local health care systems and our community resources. The federal government is sending one million more doses directly to 250 community health centers. State health leaders say they aren't sure what that looks like here yet, but that kind of community distribution is already happening. The idea is to leverage all of these connections so that we can share information on testing, on vaccines, and how uh, we are now working on a comprehensive framework to address issues within the black and brown communities. When you look at the number of first doses given here in Ohio, the disparity is stark, with far and away white Ohioans in the lead. Our local leaders say some of that comes down to messaging. There is a pretty substantial, well-produced social media campaign against vaccination. Some of those videos specifically are targeted and focused on the black community so that makes it important for us to have counter programming to speak to the community uh, and to have trusted messengers from the community be involved with conversations in the community Brittany bailey 10 tv news now, getting the COVID-19 vaccine to the underserved is a huge challenge right now. Some community leaders say our state is not doing enough. I, I'm uh, a little disappointed with um, the plan that Governor DeWine has put in place. That's Stephanie Hightower, who you'll recognize as the president and CEO of the Columbus Urban League. She and six other Urban League presidents in Ohio sent a letter to Governor DeWine. They say black Ohioans deserve to be prioritized more, especially when they are hardest hit by COVID-19. It's not only about access, they say, it's about education. That's why Hightower and local NAACP President Nana Watson got their COVID-19 vaccines. We went and we took the vaccine because we want to be those examples in our community to let people know that um, uh, we're okay. And it will, especially with our elderly black people, you know, with our, you know, with our, with our seasoned citizens and, you know, they are the, the historical figures. We, we need them around and we, so that we can continue our history and teach our young children. And, you know, when we have our, our seasoned folks who are afraid to take the vaccine, you know, they are a vulnerable population and we, we need to make sure that they're here. So how do I get, you know, that's one of the reasons why Nana, you know, the NAAC president said, I'm going to take this because, you know, she does consider herself a seasoned citizen and she wants other seasoned citizens to know that she took the vaccine and we're okay. We did hear back from the governor's office. The press secretary tells us reach out is important and that leaders are working on plans to increase their efforts.
Daycare providers across central Ohio are pushing to get access to COVID-19 vaccines. The current phase only includes K through 12 teachers. Daycare providers say they are considered essential workers and have been working with kids in person since reopening back in June, while many teachers, they say, have been working remotely. Without our early childhood programs that are in Ohio, the parents wouldn't be able to go back to work. They wouldn't be able to be successful. And every time we quarantine a classroom, every time we have to shut down schools, because it is happening at preschools, these families have to go back to their employers and try to figure out, how can I stay home and work? The state says there is no timetable available for them at this time. Now, drivers who don't stop for a stopped school bus could find themselves paying a $300 fine. Next, the new legislation that could make that consequence a reality. The governor says 91,000 COVID-19 vaccines will be available to school employees across the state. We get a progress report from school district administrators. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Drivers who don't stop for a stopped school bus could find themselves paying a $300 fine. That's part of a proposed bill at the State House to get drivers to hit the brakes when the school bus arm goes down. 10TV's Kevin Landers takes a closer look at what the legislation would change. There's no civil penalty for failing to stop for a stopped school bus in Ohio. That would change under a bill sponsored by an Ohio lawmaker who says it's time the state does a better job at curbing this potentially dangerous behavior. If that arm is out and that stop sign is out and the red lights are on, you know kids are getting off or getting on a school bus. So it's particularly egregious for someone to go past a school bus under those circumstances. State Senator Teresa Gavarone, a mother of three, crafted a bill that would fine someone $300 for failing to stop for a stopped school bus. We want to make sure that uh, our kids um, can get to school, get home from school uh, as safely as possible. Currently, drivers who fail to stop can be fined $500 and have their license suspended for a year, but that's in a criminal case. Senator Gavarone says many times drivers are never prosecuted because it requires the bus driver to identify the driver in court. It's actually a very big issue. Under her bill, if a bus camera captures the driver, the video can be sent to the police department. They would issue the fine based on the license plate, not identifying the driver. My overriding goal here is to curb behavior. Kevin Landers, 10TV News. Okay, so where would the money from the fine go? $250 would go to the school district, $25 to local police, and $25 would go to what's called the School Bus Safety and Education Fund. Another proposed bill would allow county auditors to test for bad gas at the same time they inspect pumps for accuracy. Right now in Ohio, if you have, you have no way of really knowing if the fuel you're using is pure, the Franklin County Auditor says this needs to change, not just because there's a huge issue, but also because Ohio is one of only three states that do not currently test for bad gas. We can test for octane levels, sediment, and water levels and fuel. Um, it also can address dangerous conditions uh, that will result in a stop sale. So a lot of it is fuel uh, or water in the fuel. 
Nearly 6 billion gallons of fuel are sold every year in Ohio, making ours one of the largest fuel-consuming states in the nation. The auditor says Franklin County already has the machines to do the testing, so passage of the bill would not add any new costs. The governor says 91,000 COVID-19 vaccines will be available to school employees around the state ending on February 22nd. 10TV's Stephanie Stanovich checks in with the local school districts to see where they stand. In Ohio, people who work in schools aren't required to get the vaccine. Over the last several weeks, school districts have been surveying their staff for a rough idea on how many employees would be interested in getting the vaccine. Here's what they tell us. At Circleville City Schools, 75% said they were interested. Olentangy Local Schools, 88%. Reynoldsburg City Schools, 75%. Grandview Heights, more than 80%. And Danville Local Schools, just 30%. The superintendent of Danville Local Schools in Knox County, Jason Snively, tells 10TV, quote, being a rural community, there's different mindsets. The district has 650 students total in all grades and students are spread out. He says, quote, so we feel that, you know, in an environment that we're in, that we're just not as susceptible. It's a different story here in Hilliard City Schools. The superintendent says a majority of the employees in the district want to get the vaccine. Uh, we did a survey before Christmas and we were close to 70 percent of our staff was uh, eager to get the vaccine. But Superintendent John Marshausen feels that number will go up as time goes on. If you choose not to get the vaccine, there's no judgment on my part. We would ask you to talk to your physician, to talk to your health care providers. New Albany Plain Local School District Superintendent Michael Sawyers tells us 84% of teachers and staff want the vaccine. There's just one more layer of protection that we can give you to help you be armed to come into school every single day. New Albany modified schedules for staff to get the first dose. They're back to learning in person. They'll have modified schedules again for the second dose later this month. As for this whole vaccine process, I'm going to tell you it's a relentless, tireless effort. It's hours upon hours upon hours of meetings, emails, phone calls. Working closely with health officials, the Educational Service Center of Central Ohio, and the governor's office. As for Columbus City Schools, they declined an on-camera interview, but a spokesperson shared information about their plan in an email. CCS officials are prioritizing the order of vaccine rollout for employees based on who works directly with students. School officials tell us they expect bumps in the road, but they are focused on the outcome. We start to uh, enter a process where we see light at the end of the tunnel. But right now, vaccine doses for anyone eligible, including educators. We're all doing our very best to work through a pandemic with a shortage of vaccines. New Albany superintendent says he's proud of his teachers, staff, and families. I think our people have done an incredible job. And for those in the school districts, they're eager to move forward. As normal as normal can be in these times, we are ready. Reporting in Columbus, Stephanie Sanovich, 10TV News. The governor says his decision for having teachers and school personnel in phase 1B is because of his goal for Ohio schools to return to in-person learning either full-time or in a hybrid model by March 1st. Now, if you have a question about the vaccine, let us know. Text your question to 614-460-3345. In today's Note of Promise, the month of February will forever feel different for Austin Mooney and his family. Austin Mooney has a renewed heart for life, his family, and his faith. 
He faced a crisis that included a rare heart condition that required a transplant and a wait list. While Mooney was making funeral plans, there was what he calls a miracle. Everything's past tense now, which is so cool. Austin and Larissa Mooney so have a story to tell so about faith, family, and yes, heart. Specifically, Austin's heart and lungs, which were shutting down. And he was retaining so much fluid that mm-hmm. it looked all cold in his abdomen. And he honestly looked like eight months pregnant. Every week he would gain that much fluid um, and then they'd go in and drain it. And it was just like a constant cycle. The journey started at birth with Austin, who was born with a congenital heart defect and treated at Nationwide Children's Hospital. As an adult, it was the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. OSU transplant pulmonologist Steve Kirkby says Austin's condition was rare and treatable. That over time, the problems with pressure, high pressure between his heart and his lungs caused irreversible damage in his lungs. The couple had started making funeral plans. Austin went on a transplant list on June 18th of 2020 and was told it could take anywhere from three to six months. I was so sick. But two days later, the call of a lifetime for a transplant. It was wild and we're calling people, like calling my parents, calling his family, like, hey, we're going to the hospital. Nobody's going to be able to see him. So you need to come now because we don't know when you're going to see him next. A life-saving transplant in a pandemic. The couple shared photos of the journey filled with complications and firsts like these shaky steps and being outside post-transplant. All of it, Austin says, made possible by faith, family. Um, I wouldn't be able to do without my faith in Jesus. And uh, I know it's not popular to share that, but it's the truth, and I wouldn't. And heart. I have the best husband. (laughs) He's so strong, and I'm just so thankful for him and how hard he's pushed and fought to be where he's at today. If you know someone who's overcome big obstacles, let me know. You can send me an email or a message on social media, and you just might see your warrior on Wednesday morning on Wake Up CBOS. We thank you all so much for being here with us today. Remember, if it affects you, your family, and Ohio, we're here to make sure those accountable face the state. Take care. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining us on the phone, joining us, or me, uh, I guess, on the phone, <laughs> is Dwayne Casares. He's the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. Uh, hello, Dwayne. How you doing? I'm doing great, Dave, and whoever else is with you, since you can refer to yourself as us. <laughs> I know, yeah. yeah we, have, we have programs for that, Dave. I was going to say, talking to a, a licensed therapist, uh, that's not a good way to start. <laughs> Okay, we like inclusiveness. It's better than referring to yourself like 50 times in, you know, an hour. <laughs> right. Uh, tell us, uh, for those of us who don't remember, what Directions for Youth and Families is. <laughs> you mean for those under 60, Dave? <laughs> um, we're, we're a private not. I only say that because Dave and I were talking offline about hitting 60 and, and memory. Um, we're a private nonprofit social service agency. We offer counseling case management services to the Columbus community. We also have two after-school programs, which now serve as learning exchange centers uh, to support Columbus City schools. 
Um, and we are uh, moving forward in this pandemic, been sur- uh, uh, providing three meals a day to uh, uh, kids and families in the communities that we serve um, and just hoping to get everybody through this all. It's got to be really chaotic because I know you serve a, a number of schools in the area and some of them are back and some of them are half back, uh, all kinds of stuff going on. Yeah, you know, it's a mixture. So, you know, but it's you know, our staff have been great. They've been very flexible. I mean, we've moved to 100% telehealth in the beginning of this and um, then that went down to probably about 70% by midsummer and then things started to spike. We pulled things back in, but now we're gradually going back out again. So, um, you know, we'll adjust as things adjust out in our community. And speaking of adjustment, we were going to talk about kids and, and how they're uh, faring through all of this. We're hearing an awful lot every day about just kids and struggling with schools or online or the isolation. or um, And I always think about that. Boy, when kids are struggling, you know, part of that is, is parents are going to be struggling too. Um, and, and sometimes that's like, you know, putting, you know, more kindling on a fire at times because, uh, you know, even though we're all adjusting to this, particularly in winter when, when people are um, inside a little bit more, um, behaviors tend to be challenged and um, and t- sometimes escalate into conflicts and problems. So, you know, you, you got kids that have poor impulse control or um, they react to things just differently or, or say things like, you know, they don't care or um, they can't express themselves very well, get really sensitive um, to certain things or... Um, or, or don't think about consequences to things, and they just go ahead and just act or act out and, and take unnecessary risk. All these can be very, very problematic for families. It's so difficult, too, because for kids, you know, you take a 10-year-old, they don't have any life experiences to draw on to pull them out of uh, through something like this. Yeah, and, and, and honestly, that's one of the big problems that we deal with sometimes is when adults uh, uh, or, or parents expect the kid to act like an adult. Um, it's one of the things we have to remind parents all the time. I don't know why he's doing that. I don't know why she's doing that. Well, because they're 10. This, this is, there's a very simple reason for that. Um, they're 10. Now we have to deal with that. These are learning opportunities that uh, uh, we, we don't want to pass on. They're also used to spending their time maybe playing video games at home, and now they actually have to work at home because uh, they're taking their classes online. Or they're squeezing both in and... Um, you know, there, there's a lot of challenges even with, with uh, the whole thing of staring at a screen all day and being, you know, uh, stuck in one room. And, um, you know, th- these things just really bring an awful lot of challenges. Um, I, I think parenting is an important part of it, too. You know, just like I said that our, our agency has to uh, adjust as these things change, parents have to adjust their parenting style. You have to anyway, just based upon the personality of your kid. Um but right now, you just have to keep adjusting because things keep changing for them. You, know, you, you made a good point before, uh, Dave. You know, you're talking a 10-year-old. Let's remember, uh, brain development continues till you're like 24 or 26. Mm-hmm. Parents have fully developed brains. We expect more out of parents just because of that, um, and I think we should. You think about all the little agonizing things that can be going on around households, like sharing a computer, or you know, maybe there's only one computer and no tablets and no other means to get online and and you've got three kids and and two adults or one adult that have to share all that this is where little things like having structure is extremely important when you have an unstructured environment you're opening things up for for a problem so 
uh, sometimes just sitting down and putting a little structure together to make sure that you're not all, you know, stepping over each other. Um, these seems like very minor things to do, but they can add an awful lot uh, to the day-to-day -day interactions within a household. Uh, modeling this, uh, you know, parents get stressed too. So, you know, you're on a Zoom call or something and, and it goes out and you're disconnected and you're screaming and yelling about it or cussing about it. You are modeling to your kid for when that happens and they're on a school thing. So, um, you know, just remember, they're always present and you're always present. You're watching each other and you're learning from each other. Um, and then we get upset when they act like we did. So uh, we have to be careful and mindful about these things. What are the sorts of uh, issues that the people who are in the field uh, who work uh, with your agency, what seems to be the trends, the biggest problems that they're seeing? Well, you know, depression and anxiety are probably the two big, biggest uh, diagnostic things that we look at, but very, very common um, within kids growing up, oppositional defiant behavior, um, which is just basically a kid challenging authority or acting out uh, with poor impulse control. Uh, you know, these, these are now these are separate from conduct disorder. Conduct disorder, it takes it a step further, and that's when you start infringing upon the rights of other people. Um, that's a little bit more severe. Um, but some of these behaviors, they can be controlled. You just have to make sure that um, you're taking the time to address it. Sometimes people think, oh, they're just going to grow out of it or it's going to go away. Um, that's not a truth. <laughs> it, that may be your truth, but um, it's not necessarily a truth. So uh, you have to work through some of these things. You have to acknowledge these things. You have to engage with your kid in a positive way. You know, you got to spend time with them, spend positive time with them. A anytime you spend a great deal of positive time with your child, that just just by the virtue fact of that, that decreases the amount of negative time you can spend with the child. Uh, um, it's a very simple thing to have to think about, but we don't necessarily uh, structure positive time with our kid. And, and sometimes you just really need to, especially now. And as difficult as times are right now, there will never be a better time to take time for positive uh, relationships. Yeah, and you need to be proactive about these things, too. So if your kid is easy, uh, like if they have low self-esteem, they're going to be sensitive to any type of criticism, um, which could then make them angry. And, and people, you know, they act out in different ways. So um, we encourage families to have anger plans, not just for your kid, but for yourself. Let's remember, uh, and I've always said this in parenting classes, when you're angry, you're about as dumb as you're possibly going to be. So you're going to say things that you normally wouldn't say. You're going to do things that you normally wouldn't do. So being angry is not the time then to figure out what you're going to do. Having anger plans, um, they create a hiccup, if you will, you know, a pause of acknowledgement that you're uh, escalating. And now I have a plan of things I can do in order to address the anger so I don't do something dumb. Talking with Dwayne Casares, he's the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. The Franklin County Coroner says uh, through the first nine months of this year, suicides were actually down 5% in Franklin County, but they were up among those under age 24, which uh, has got to be more concerning than anything. You know, that that's always just concerning, and, and my understanding it's up for the elderly, too. You know, this whole thing is, uh, it, this has been a long time for all of us. We're almost, you know, in about a year of this isolation or detachment from our normal uh, uh, functioning lives. Uh, we have to pay attention to these things. When we start uh, uh, looking at things like depression, um, uh, 
uh, anxiety and things like that. We have to be very serious about having safety plans to make sure um, that our kids are safe, to make sure uh, that they're not going to harm themselves, to make sure uh, that we openly talk about these things. Uh, don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt others. Don't destroy property. Don't. I mean, we, we need to talk about some of these things to make sure that kids have emotional outlets. So it's not just a cognitive process. It is emotional. Um, and, and we just can't ignore these things. Because uh, a lot of the kids that Direction for Youth and Families comes into contact with are living in disruptive homes or, or have uh, issues that they're struggling with, are there some of those kids who are thriving better in this environment where maybe there are fewer social contacts? Uh, you know, that that's just across the spectrum. You're always going to find folks at, at some ends that are going to end up being, uh, especially if, if they're um, more of an isolate anyway. So we're always challenged when we deal with, with withdrawn kids just because we make an awful lot of assumptions. Parents make many assumptions. I think we make a lot of big mistakes with withdrawn kids. We think, oh, they need to be more social. Then, so we force them into social situations, which just increases their anxiety, and then they start acting out, and then we wonder what went wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, uh, sometimes people are going to be a little bit more isolated than other people. That doesn't mean it's a huge form of impairment. It means we just have to now adjust how we're going to work with them, how we're going to, uh, uh, um, uh, in a sense, evaluate them from a parent's standpoint of what's okay and what's not. So. Uh, people who struggle with anxiety, social anxiety, this makes it a little bit easier for them. It actually is really kind of a, a uh, an avenue where you can see that they don't have to interact with them physically, uh, but that they're doing it like over the Internet with a group of people. It really does reduce some of those uh, uh, stressors that come into play um, if they were as opposed to if they were there in person. Yeah, that's interesting because kids – You know, if it's a kid who doesn't have a lot of friends and they're quiet and kind of withdrawn or shy, they may be just hardwired that way and be fine with it and not struggling, whereas with others, they might be that way because they're full of anxiety. Right, exactly. Uh, And and let's be clear about this. You know, everyone responds differently to things. So different kids respond differently to a, a depression. Different kids respond differently to anxiety. There's no, like you know, one-fits-all behavior pattern that you can uh, uh, respond to. Uh, uh, Sometimes, uh, um, uh, particularly with young males, uh, uh, depression comes out in acting out behaviors. It it can look like aggression when, in fact, it is depression. Um, We misread it, and therefore we respond to it in the wrong way. So, uh, you know, when you really start to struggle and these are patterns that – you start seeing on a regular basis, that's when it really is time to reach out and perhaps get some uh, um, assistance and insight uh, from somebody out in the field. Talking with Dwayne Casares, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. He also was, uh, before that, the uh, clinical director there and is a licensed therapist. When kids are struggling academically, uh, there, there's kind of a, a maybe a built-in reason because if they're learning from home, that's something new and a challenge in itself. But along with that, if their attitude or you know something about their demeanor is off, when should parents be taking note of that and what should they do? Well, first thing, let's not overreact to that because most kids are now struggling academically. You know, I've had uh, uh, I have a few friends who are uh, that teach in, in the uh, school systems around Columbus, and um, all of them across the board have said. Uh, they've never had so many kids who are failing. Um, 
that that that's concerning number one but number two that also paints a different picture so let's not overreact to this it, it's not your kid may have never been in in they may not have been a straight a student um but they could have been a pretty average student and now they're flunking well we need to address that as a system uh, uh truly one of my uh, uh buddies had said that over half his kids are failing and he's never seen numbers like that wow. and i've known this guy for a long time and he's a really good teacher very invested in his kids uh, um so that's concerning like so you know we need to look this in it in a broader uh, uh, frame um, and not just, you know, well, it's just my kid. I think it's many kids. I think school systems are going to have to address this uh, um, uh, just because, well, look, some kids' self-esteem is so low that any type of feedback that is negative sends them a little bit deeper than it might be another kid whose uh, sense of self-efficacy is a little bit stronger. When we start sending this message to somebody who wasn't in that group before, like I wasn't failing before and now I am, and I'm already at risk because I have this low self-concept of myself, we're creating bigger problems here. And we really do need to address this as a system. And that can really get exacerbated if you've got a, a domineering parent who won't accept that answer from their kid. Yeah, or, or expects, you know, more or, or blames a kid in a sense. That's what they're doing. Uh, uh, that doesn't mean then turn around and lash out at the school system. It means to work, acknowledge it, and then work collectively to try to see what you can do about it. Um, sometimes we're just going to have to accept some things right now a little less than others. And, and let's look at it the other side, too. It's just not the kids. Some teachers are more effective uh, uh, doing things virtually, and others, uh, other teachers are ineffective at it. So um, this really goes on both sides. So we really need to start looking at all the variables in these pictures uh, before we start responding to them and reacting to them. It's interesting because, you know, workers uh, are also going through this, and and at least with the station where I work, there was a a series of meetings and constantly management asking, what do you need? What's missing? How can we help? And that's the way parents have to be with their kids when they're trying to do school online. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. We we have introduced a whole new thing of self-care within our organization uh, just to assist our workers. You know, we're human services. That's human contact, which has really been disrupted. Uh, um, also, working in isolation is a little bit difficult, particularly with some of the challenging cases that we work with. At times, you used to just turn around in your cubicle and bounce, you know, ideas off of uh, one of your coworkers. Uh, that's not available uh, now all the time. So we really had to step up our game to make sure that we're keeping uh, our staff uh, 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 safe and healthy and, and, uh, and feel supported. That's the same thing we should be doing with our kids at home. It seems like I ask you this every, every other time we talk. Where do you think this is going in terms of, you know, how relationships work, how work works? We've certainly been thrown a curveball, and there's been some remarkable adaptation to it. You know, as long as we can reduce the harm, you know, suffering through these things, we're going to learn an awful lot through it. This is what helped uh, build resilience. So, um, you know, it, it's easy to look at all the negatives. At times, we can look at the fact that this could be a, a positive in the long run. Um, it can build our ability to transition and change and, and, and move forward. Uh, um, it could actually uh, build avenues for better relationships because we're going to focus in on them. But that means you have to at least pay attention to it. Dwayne Casares, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. If folks want more info about your agency, Dwayne, how do they find it? Uh, they can check us out on the web at dfyf.org 
or call our intake department, uh, which is all working virtually from home, uh, 614-294-2661. All right, Mr. Dwayne, thanks for your time. Thank you, Dave. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.